All right. Am I on? Yes. All right. If everybody will come in and get a seat, I have 601 on my watch. May or may not be right, but that's what I got. So if y'all will come in and shoo everybody away from the Krispy Kreme table in the back, we'll get to those in a minute. I wish they would have kept that covered or semi-secret until we got through because I know there's nobody in here going to listen to anything I say. You have Krispy Kreme going, visions of Krispy Kreme dancing in your head. Yeah. So, just come on, make your way in, have a seat as close to the front and center as you can, and we will get started. Just to let you know, we will be uh, answering uh, at least four questions out of the box in the emails that we've received tonight at the end. So, uh, if you want to put that in the back of your head, if you were one of the ones that have submitted questions, we are going to answer some of them tonight and, and some each week after that. The speakers are under the balcony. Do what? Speakers are working on that. The speakers under the balcony, Doug, they say are not on. Can you check that zone? and? Uh, are they, you see it now? Okay. All right. There's two ways to fix that. We can either turn them on or move you up. And I'm for uh, the latter, of course. Uh, it's funny how people sit in the very places that make them the most miserable. They'll sit back under the balcony where the sound's the loudest and the air's the coldest and complain about it being loud and the air cold. And so, uh, not a spiritual thing, but move up and uh, down and up. It's, and I'll probably say that till you get sick of it. So let's start in a word of prayer and we'll get started. All right, we're going to talk about attitude tonight. God, thank you for uh, people of the word, a people of the work. And Lord, what a great morning this morning. What a good word from Jared and Terry from, the, from your word that helped us to put in perspective how important it is to worship together. For, for us as a church family, for individual homes as families for unbelievers and believers alike god just some great encouragement truth and conviction about the importance of worshiping you in spirit and in truth so that we can truly do kingdom work so god thank you for the the day we've already had thank you for all those that have come back out tonight and and uh ready to move forward with some more expectations and god would you just uh, anoint and bless our time now and would you uh Help us to honor you with our thoughts, our words, our responses, our actions, and our reactions. We just want to be honoring to you and and for the kingdom's sake and for your glory. So, God, we love you and ask that you overwhelm us with your presence during these next few minutes. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're on week three of of Nexpectations. We started with, uh, it's a six-week series. We started with uh, Nexpectation number one, a clarity of the gospel. Now we're spending all these six weeks and every, every one of these first six, every one of these six weeks of expectations is all to answer the question, why? Why? Because if we don't spend a lot of time on the why before we get to the what, everybody will get frustrated with what we're doing if they don't understand why we're doing it. Does that make sense? That's usually communication error number one two three through five hundred is everybody starts in midstream on the what assuming everybody understands the why and that's never true so we're spending these six weeks and for that matter nine weeks on sunday morning answering the questions why 
And then in the days to come, we'll start putting together and wrapping the what around the why. But by then, you will understand the why and be able to accept and execute the what. Did I just confuse everybody, including myself? Now, you know what I'm saying? We're going to talk about the why. And we're going to continue with the why tonight. So the first, answer, the first question of why is clarity of the gospel. Why? Because if we don't get that right, nothing else matters. That is central question number one. What is the gospel? And we spent the first night talking about the fact that the gospel this church is going to be centered on and do everything from its base is a kingdom gospel that creates Disciples who make disciples that are about the kingdom work first. We're disciple makers first. We're kingdom work, gospel following people first. So the kingdom gospel is essential in our mission and vision headed forward. That's next expectation number one. Next expectation number two, we talked about last week, discipleship is not optional. It is everything we are here for. We are here to make disciples. It is the great commission. It is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It is everything, the only thing Christ Jesus spoke into our lives as he was leaving this earth to sit at the right hand of the Father to empower his disciples to literally empower the church for the gospel's sake. Discipleship's not optional. A salvation-only gospel is not New Testament gospel. A salvation gospel that moves to a life of discipleship that makes disciples, that makes disciples and continues on making disciples is the Great Commission work. Go ye therefore into all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I have commanded you to do. And lo, I'll be with you all, even to the end of the age. So it's a self-perpetuating gospel army of disciple makers, not church members, disciple makers. So discipleship is not optional. That New Testament paradigm does not exist without disciples and disciple makers. So clarity of the gospel, disciple making is not optional. Tonight, we're going to talk about whatever it takes. Attitude is everything. Attitude is everything. We have to come to a point, and and as we talk through this tonight, I hope it's clear biblically and strategically why attitude matters and why we have to have a whatever it takes attitude and it comes down to the eternal eternal life of people and we're going to we're going to sort of hit home on that toward the end but let's let's get into whatever it takes attitude proverbs 23 7 says as a man thinks in his heart so is he as a man thinks envelops his attitude does, does your attitude determine how you think about a matter? If you walk in with a positive attitude, do you start interacting and discussing in a positive manner? If you walk in with a, with a jaded attitude that's sort of mean-spirited or, or shaded by something that just went on outside of the current reality in church, does it not shade how you think? Absolutely. We're people. We're wired that way. That's the reason attitude is everything. It's important. So as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And so it's important. The key is heart. If our heart is right, then our minds are not free to think as they wish. If our hearts are based on the truth of the word of God, if our, if our hearts are based in a biblically, biblical worldview belief system, 
of the absolute inerrant truth of the word of God, if our hearts are wrapped around that world and centered as that is our cornerstone, as that is our plumb line, then our minds follow our hearts. Therefore, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And it's important. The attitude of our heart and our belief system is unbelievably important. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart and guard it with all diligence. For from it flows the spring of life. Again, the heart is the critical issue. The soul of our being, where, where the spirit of God dwells. We have to have it in the right place, under the right influence. My attitude is the major difference between success and failure. Whether it's in spiritual work, secular work, relationships amongst believers and non-believers, family. My attitude determines success and failure. My attitude will, will sink me or float me. Attitude is everything because of the way we're wired. That's why it's important we get it under control. That's the, re- that's the reason it's important it's not be driven by our emotions. It's the reason it's important that it's driven by Christ Jesus in us, the spirit of Christ in us. If that's our driver, then our attitude will keep in proper check and, and under proper conviction when it starts wavering out. And the word of God will be our forever plumb line because it says it's useful for teaching Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Word of God, it's for teaching. It's for telling us what's right. It's for rebuking. It's for telling us when we're wrong. It's for correcting to bring us back to what's right. And it's for training in righteousness to keep us right. That's where our, our life has to be wrapped up. And our attitude built on that foundation. Or if our attitude's built on anything else within us, phew, we're a mess. And so is the lives of everyone around us, including our church. My attitude is a major difference between success and failure. Biblical example, 12 spies. Old Testament, Kadesh Barnea. Send 12 into the promised land. Ten come, or 12 come back. 10 say, hmm, can't go there. Those guys are huge. We're like grasshoppers before them. They're, we got no business. They'll kill us. Two come back. Joshua, Caleb, my heroes in the Old Testament, especially Caleb. Everybody loves Joshua. Everybody loves a military commander. But Caleb, he's a superstar. Eighty years plus, they try to relegate ownership of him after all the conquest happens to something less than God originally promised him. And Caleb stands up. Mm-mm. God promised me that mountain. And I am just as strong a man now as I was when the promise was made. Give me my mountain. Two men come back with the attitude with wrapped around the presence of God and the truth of his word and his promise in their heart. Two men come back with that attitude and say, it's already ours. What do you mean we can't go? To not claim it would be to, not, to deny the truth of God. In this case, majority... And 40 years in the wilderness ruled. Attitude determines everything. Are we going to have an attitude of fear or an attitude of trust in truth and in the spirit of God? We cannot allow fear to rule in our lives at all, individually or as a church. Because God is with us always.
Attitude is everything. Luke 6.46, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. You see a common thread here? The heart and the state of it determines everything in our lives. It determines how we think. It determines how we act. It determines how we react. It determines how we talk. And it determines how others view us and our confidence in the God that we say created the world and that we serve. And if we do not live our lives with that kind of confidence, it breeds fear in the world around us that maybe our God is not what we say he is. I know they say he's the God of the universe, but they don't act like it and they don't live it and they don't proclaim it in such a way. We need to have a God-centered, God-trusting, confident, Holy Spirit-empowered attitude in order to change the world. It's critical. It's critical. My attitude is my best friend. How many know this to be true? My attitude is my best friend or my worst enemy. Anybody ever had their attitude as their worst enemy? Anybody ever had their wife tell them that was their worst enemy? If she's a good one, she does. And vice versa. Yeah, your attitude can be your best friend or your worst enemy. You've got to keep it in check, and it's got to be checked with the plumb line of the Word of God. It must be. It must be. It's the only thing we have that's solid. Everything else ebbs and flows and will get you in big trouble. My attitude will change when I choose to change it. Attitude's a choice. That's what this little thing shows. Uh, I think, yeah, there's one more word. Attitude is, there's three things that attitude could be a function of here. Age, conditions, environment around you, or choices. Your attitude is not a function of age or of conditions. Your attitude is, always will be, always has been a function of choice. We choose our attitudes. You can't blame it on anybody. You can, but it's not theirs to own. It's yours. Our attitudes are our choice to make, just like everything else. We sin because we want to. You say, hmm, I don't. Yeah, you do. You wouldn't do it. There's pleasure in sin for a day, the Scripture says. You do it because you want to. You have a rotten attitude because you choose it, because it gratifies the sinfulness in your heart that still lives in you. That needs to be sanctified. When we learn to choose our attitude of godliness and confidence and power in the Holy Spirit, then we have an attitude built by a choice based on truth that can turn the world upside down. Attitude is a choice. It's just the reality of it. These are all general statements about attitude, and I'm going to get to the whatever it takes in a minute. But you, I think you need to understand and have a grasp on attitude because it's everything. If you, if you work with a person who has a rotten attitude, you try to find every way in the world either not to go to work when you're going to have to encounter him or work in another part of the building or another part of the world for that matter. I mean, attitude drives everything. And a rotten one is not one to be around. My attitude needs continual adjustment. We all do because of our flesh. Nobody's attitude's always perfect. It's not always right because we don't always base it on truth. 
So what are some indicators for attitude adjustments? I just listed several, and I'll just blow through them real quick. But you can probably identify. One thing tells me I need an attitude adjustment. I haven't had adequate time alone with God. When, when you don't have your quiet time and you're not grounded in, in the, the, the presence of God and the peace of God, your attitude is going to flow away from God, not toward him. So if we start neglecting the disciplines and, and, the, and the joy of our quiet time, of our devotional life, of our personal worship, as Terry and Jared shared this morning, if we start neglecting that, it'll show up in your attitude, I promise you. Because there's, there's a monster of ungodly attitude that lives within you, and there's, you know, an, an angel of good attitude, godly attitude that lives within you. And the one you feed is the one that wins out. And your godly attitude is fed by his word and by prayer and by devotional time and by fellowship with other believers and by corporate worship and private worship. All those things feed godly attitude because they feed the spirit within you. And as you feed the spirit, you feed godly attitude. My family notices and tells me about my attitude. I think you need to give your family permission to do that. Give them permission. Dad, you didn't have your quiet time this morning, did you? Dad, what's up? You're a little cranky this week. Can we pray for you? No, I'm not cranky. I don't know what you're talking about. Our emotions are on the surface. But I think we need to give our families permission to speak into our attitudes in a loving, respectful, God-honoring, recentering way. My relationship with my coworkers became become strained. If everybody in the office is in harmony and I'm the one that's not, guess who may just have the problem? My view of people begins to lower. When you start valuing people less you've left God's heart because God values them to death. So when you start dropping your value on people, John Maxwell used to say, put a 10 on people's heads when you walk in the room. If you put a 10 on their head and visually see them as a 10, you will treat them as a 10. You value them as a 10 and they will return eventually that respect. When your value of people starts to lower, then you're in trouble. You need an attitude adjustment. And the last one is my perspective on life becomes cynical. Cynical. Boy, when you start turning cynical and, and don't have a good word for anybody, in, in my life it starts as sarcasm. That's a nice word for cynical. And I'm a master. I have a Ph.D. in sarcasm. And uh, uh, sometimes I hate that in myself. And the bad thing is I, I passed it down to my children uh, the good thing is I usually have a governor on mine and can pull it back, and they didn't learn that part of it. And uh, so theirs becomes rude at times. And, and so sarcasm turns into cynicism, and when you become cynical, you need to really check your attitude because it needs an adjustment because that sarcasm speaks in bad ways to people and devalues them by the way you react with them, and that's not godly. People catch our attitudes like they catch a cold from us by getting too close to us. I mean, you ever seen, you ever caught a good attitude from somebody? I have. You, you're around somebody who's chipper and whistles and smiles all the time. Uh, at first, it'll hack you off if you had, if you're not a morning person and, you know, you wonder why, why they're happy and, and you're not. And, but, but eventually it will rub off on you. 
Because if their spirit continues to have one of joy, it's hard to maintain one of cynicism in the midst of joy. Joy smothers cynicism. It just does. That's why it's important to be joyful and live our life with, with the joy of Christ in our lives and in the midst of his presence. And so it, it's just important. And, and the other thing is true, too. If you're around cynical, negative people all the time, guess what? It catches. And the whole place turns down. And then you, then you have to have a, a leader, in, a God-centered leader in the office to, to lift everybody back up. And it's difficult. There's a weight to that. So it's better if we keep, from a Christian perspective, keep our, keep our attitudes centered on God because your attitude's contagious. And so all these are just really general questions or general statements on attitude. Here's a question. Ask yourself, what are people catching from you? Attitudes or batitudes? Uh, we're capable of both. Are we not? But we should, as we meet Christ, as the scripture says, from glory to glory, from God moment to God moment, from God encounter to God encounter, our attitudes ought to really start softening and our attitudes should turn to be like the mind of Christ, loving, compassionate, valuing people, even to the death. Our attitudes are contagious and they are everything. The only hope the world has is if the church has a whatever-it-takes attitude. A whatever-it-takes attitude. Listen, the church, this can either scare you or empower you. The church is plan A for God. So love the world. We are plan A, you and I. Here's the scary part. There is no plan B. We're it. Now, the great glorious part, we're all he needs. We're all he needs. It's his plan. He formed it before the foundations of the earth were laid. And he planned on us sharing the gospel with the world. But in order to do that, if we're going to turn the world upside down for the gospel's sake, we have to have a whatever it takes attitude. And a lot of that in First Corinthians 9, 9 through, uh, 19 through 27, I'm just going to read it and then we'll expound on some of it very quickly. But Paul says, this is a, this is a very, uh, very uh, well-known discourse in Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, although I'm a free man and not anyone's slave, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. In verse 20, he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. Paul is just explaining the clarity of whatever it takes to those who are without the law, like one without the law, not being without God's law, but within Christ's law to win those without the law, whatever it takes to the weak. I became weak in order to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Paul says, listen, whatever it takes. Eternity is too long to be wrong. These people are not going off into a far country. These people are going to an eternal hell without the presence of God in their life for all eternity. This is not a game that we can choose not to be a part of. This is a whatever it takes all in. We are God's plan, the church. There's urgency. Eternal urgency. Verse 23. I do all this because of the gospel. So I may become a partner in its benefits. 
Don't you know that the runners in the stadium all race, but only one receives a prize? So run in such a way to win. Run in such a way to win the prize, Paul says. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. However, they do it to receive a crown that will fade away for temporal things. But we, a crown that will never fade, we do it for eternal things. So our purpose and, and passion and drive and attitude should be eternally greater than the Olympic athlete. And you know the rigors of their training. They literally live in a training camp, their entire training period for years in their life from really, really small until they get old and decrepit at 25. That's crazy. But it's with that rigor times a million that we should approach the gospel because it's an eternal thing. It's not a gold medal thing. It's an eternal damnation thing that we have to have an urgency about. Therefore, I don't run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. He says, instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Let's just break that down a little bit. Verse 19, he said, I have made myself. He chose. He chose his attitude. He chose his plight in life. He chose his mission based on the calling of Christ in his life. Based on the one who died for him, he chose to die. It's our choice. Our attitude must be that of Paul as it is in Christ Jesus. Paul told his disciples oftentimes, he said, follow me. And always had a qualifier, as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. With his attitude, with his mind. I have made myself, that's a choice, a slave to everyone. That's humility. I have placed myself under the feet of everyone God brings to me. I choose humility to win more people and others' mindset. He chose to humble himself for the sake of others, whatever it takes. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To the weak, I became weak. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. Whatever it takes, I choose for their sake. Whatever it takes attitude is first and foremost an attitude that gets over ourselves and puts others first. What's the title of our, son, our series in the Sunday morning? I will, nine traits of an outwardly focused Christian, outwardly focused church. We must put others first. An attitude that gets over ourselves and put others first. We are not here for us. We have to change that belief about the church. Inside these walls, for the church folks like you and I, it exists to equip and empower and give us a vehicle for worshiping God. But the purpose that we are here for in all of those things are for those outside. It's an others first attitude. It has to be. We're saved. I'm going to live forever with God. I'm secured, sealed by the Holy Spirit until the final day of redemption when I'm glorified. I have nothing to fear. Paul said, don't fear the man that all he can do is take your life. Fear the one that can take your soul. God has secured my soul. I have nothing to fear but him. And he has secured me. Therefore, all of my Efforts, attitudes, perspectives, all, all of my pr- 
preferences, everything must be surrendered for the sake of others. It has to be. Because that's what God did. When Christ crawled up on the cross for me and you, we were first. Whatever it takes, attitude is a disciplined life lived with purpose and on purpose. Verse 23 said, now I do all this because of the gospel, the purpose, so I may become a partner in its benefits, run in such a way to win the prize. Our purpose, gospel's sake, gospel's sake. It's really that simple so that we can be that focused. Any other distraction that leads us away from sharing the gospel of Christ with a lost world, we are so far outside the purview of the church, it's not even funny. The church exists for the gospel's sake, for obedience to God, for the building of his kingdom. Whatever it takes attitude, he says, therefore, I don't run like somebody who aimlessly runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching, I don't disqualify myself. So whatever it takes attitude, what's it look like in us? It looks like Jesus. It looks like Paul. It looks like Timothy. It looks like all the apostles as they place themselves in their own means of death for the gospel's sake. It's what it has to look like in my life. How can it look anything else and be true to what God called us to? It can't. We're called to die. As hard as that sounds, it is as glorious as presented in the scriptures. It's a call to die so that we can live, so that others will know him for all eternity. It looks like Jesus. It looks like Paul. What, what does it look like in us? It don't look like whiny, self-serving, too hot, too cold, too long, too loud, too stuck, too proud church member. It don't look like any of that. It looks like Paul. It looks like Jesus. Do you see anywhere in the scriptures where Jesus or Paul said it's too hot, it's too cold? No. Paul said, give me these chains. In these chains, the gospel is advanced. Jailer, I'm still here. Close that door. For the gospel's sake. There's a jailer here that needs Jesus. As John, as they attempted to to kill the apostle John before he was put into exile on Patmos, whatever it takes, burn me, boil me, it's all him. When that didn't work, scared him to death. They stuck him in a cave. God gave him the revelation. Whatever it takes. Our attitudes have to be that of Christ Jesus. That were exhibited by his incarnation incarnation on the earth and Paul's life as it went and spread the gospel throughout the known world. For the decades after the ascension. The world is dying moment by moment without Christ. There's no time for selfishness, no time for self-centeredness, no time for excuses. The world is dying. This is an eternal life and death, not just an earthly life and death situation. While we've been sitting here in our air-conditioned padded pews, every 60 minutes on this earth, 6,390 people die. 
6,390 people die in a 60-second period every hour of every day of every year of our existence. The vast, vast, vast majority go to an eternal hell apart from God. If that does not spell urgency, I don't know what does. In my last sentence, three people died. In the last two words, one person died without Christ. There's an urgency. Our hearts should break. We should weep. We should be so compassionate toward the lostness of the world that there are no excuses. Our fears based on our inadequacies and 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 our lack of understanding, that's just senselessness. We know Christ. We know who he is to us and we know what he has done for us. If we will just get that into the world, it's his job to save them. Listen, there's no wrong way to share the gospel except for not to share it. And we have to be urgent. Our attitude must be that of Christ Jesus, whatever it takes. We have to have a whatever-it-takes attitude. It's the only thing that the Great Commission leaves room for. It's the only thing that Christ taught. It's the only thing his death exemplifies. It's the only thing the martyrdom of the apostles and all those up to and including today that were killed for the faith. The whatever-it-takes attitude is the only thing we should have room for in our lives. And it's the only thing that will fill this building with people passionate and on fire for the gospel. I I have no desire to see this building filled with a bunch of church members who are satisfied to sit here and play church and come once a week to feel good about themselves and pat themselves on the back more and more. That is not who this building must be filled with because that changes eternity, not a zero. This building has to be filled full of people beginning with us with a whatever it takes attitude So our next expectation as a church is for us to grab a hold of the truth of the word of God, be filled with the spirit of Christ, have a whatever it takes attitude and get to the work of the gospel. Now that should go without saying, shouldn't it? I know church is about the great commission and the gospel. So what's wrong? Why is the building not full? Why are the waters not stirring? Not just weekly, daily. I think we should come to the place where we have to schedule baptism seven days a week in shifts. You think there's not that many lost people within the sound of our voices in this city? There absolutely is. Wouldn't that be incredible? I don't know. Let me put you down for baptism. How about 3 o'clock in the morning? That's the only slot we got. I'm telling you, we just have to sleep in shifts and maybe in the pews because I don't want to miss it. I want to be a part of the movement of God that's called Wallace Memorial Baptist Church that the men who have gone, men and women who have gone before us and, and stand proudly with us now, 
that they've given and sacrificed for. That Dr. McCluskey and Lib gave almost 40 years of their life for this to come together and, and to see God's church completely overwhelm this city with the presence and the power of God. Whatever it takes. But if we don't start thinking that way and, and committing our heart to that way and praying that way and, and getting on our knees that way, we don't get it. You want to know the why of where we're moving as a church? Over 6,000 people an hour that die without Christ. People in our own families that don't know Christ. Our own children and grandchildren that don't know Christ. We were just meeting a minute ago, and I think it was Jeff that mentioned, I wonder how many people here have children and grandchildren are out of church. They've walked away from the faith that we tried to pour into them. It's for them that we exist. Pray for my children. I'll pray for yours. Share with my children. I'll share with yours. Share with your neighbors. I'll share with yours. You share with my neighbors. We have to have a whatever-it-takes attitude. We have to have an urgency about the gospel. We have to understand the absolute horror of the situation we live in day in and day out. You know, the answer to our world issues with ISIS and all that, it's not war. It's Christ. You're not going to change them with ideologies or politics. You'll only change them with the heart of Christ Jesus. You want to shut down ISIS? Share the gospel with them. I think we serve a God that's great enough to do it. But how can they hear if nobody goes? How can somebody go if they're not sent? We have to be about the gospel. And get over this vocational missionary thing. Guess what? Everybody looking at me right now is a vocational missionary. In the rhythm of your life where you work, live, and play, you're God's missionary to the world. If you define it any other way, you've missed the whole calling of the Great Commission and the whole purpose of why we're here. We're all vocational missionaries. Here, now, where you work. You work where I don't. You live in a cycle and a rhythm of life that I don't live in. I can't reach where you live. You can. But if we don't start having a whatever-it-takes attitude and getting into our community, meeting the people around us with no excuses... For the gospel's sake, we've completely missed the boat. And we'll have a great time on Sunday morning and eventually die. I refuse. I won't do it. I won't do it. And I don't think you will either. But we better have a whatever-it-takes attitude to change the world. It's time. Now, pray with me. God, we stand with hearts convicted. We stand with with our lives in clear view of you 
And Lord, I pray you would turn us inside out and just cleanse us of everything that keeps our attitude even one breath away from Christ. So search our heart, Lord. If there's any wicked ways within us, if there's an excuse or an attitude that that needs to be refined and burn away, God, I pray that, that the pain commence and that we would be clean vessels before you to be used for the gospel, that all selfishness and self-righteousness would be cast aside, that we might be literally warriors for the gospel, that we would be the church that Jesus said he was going to build, that he is building, that the gates of hell would not prevail against. God, help us shake our foundations that we might shake the world, that the kingdom might know the gospel is alive and well at Wallace Memorial in Knoxville, in Tennessee, in the United States. May your church be brought back. May it be brought back to the place that you died for it to be. May it be a place of community, a place of planning and strategy for the Great Commission. And God, may our hearts be turned towards you and may our excuses fade. And may every step be placed in obedience to you for your glory and the kingdom's sake and for the gospel. God, we love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Next week, uh, we're going to hit some questions right now before you get donuts in your eyes. <clears throat> Next week is uh, Labor Day weekend, so we will not be meeting in here. Uh, Sunday morning still going on, and uh, we're going to talk about what it means to uh, grow together, uh, to be disciples of Christ on Sunday morning. So uh, hope you're going to be here and, and bring some friends with you. Uh, great discussion this morning and uh so we're we're really excited terry and jared just knocked it out of the park this morning i thought they did an incredible job not only ministering with the word but with the music both of them and it was just a great morning i mean i I left here really really refreshed and excited and challenged and encouraged and uh i I heard a lot of the same energy and sentiment as we uh moved around the building after that so next uh next week no pm activities but then we'll be back in here on the 11th at six to move into uh an expectation number four with that i want to uh stay true to our promise and there's probably some on my slide that that we won't get to but uh the first question is uh why do we have i will book for connect group as well as worship Chad, come up and address that if you would. Uh, we, we're, I mean, that's true for both campuses. Um, and so why, do we, why are we doing it in both places? Thank you, Daryl. Um, one of the reasons I was asked to answer this question is because um, we at, uh, at the Cumberland campus, we united our connect group content and our sermon content and united them together to where they match each other each week. We started that back in April. So this has been going on for quite a while. 
And even though the majority of people are really enjoying it, some people ask from time to time, as some of you have as well, why are we doing the same thing in Connect Group that we're doing in the worship service and the sermon? It's a valid question. So I want to answer that in two parts. First, to kind of give you a historical overview to help you understand that we're actually not doing something that new by uniting our our Sunday school or Connect Group material and our sermon material. That's not a very new thing. Um, one of the reasons is because back in biblical times from Moses on down to when the temple was built, what people did is they worshiped in homes and in small groups and they learned in small groups and in homes. Once the temple was built, it still wasn't a regular weekly worship service that they gathered for mainly because you couldn't fit that many people into one location at the temple, but whatever was taught at the temple Those families would go home or other people would meet in homes, neighbors would meet in homes and keep digesting and keep chewing on spiritually the stuff that they had learned at the temple complex. Um, Now in the New Testament, fast forward, at the passage we looked at this morning where you looked at in your connect groups, it talks about in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47, it talks about how they gathered at the temple complex and also met from house to house. You remember that passage? Well, they would hear sermon content being preached by the apostles or pastors, and then they would go from homes to homes or even in families, and they would continue to reflect on that material. And so it really wasn't until the late 1700s until the Sunday school model came about with Robert Rakes and this whole idea of learning different stuff in different age groups. And it really wasn't until the late 1800s until we have what we call Baptist Sunday School Board, we now call Lifeway, to where people get quarterlies or books or online material that vary all over the place in terms of connect groups. So if you take into account from the beginning of Moses to the beginning of the uh, 20th century. That's 3,400 years of taking what a teacher, preacher, priest, or apostle taught, and then continuing to learn on that topic in a small group. So what we're doing is not very new. It's actually a very brief thing that happened in church history to continue to reflect on whatever it is is being taught in the sermon. So that's kind of a historical view. Here's some quick practical answers of why we're doing this. One of the reasons we're doing the I will study and learning the same thing in connect groups and discussing the same thing in connect groups that we hear from the pulpit is because we want to study one thing really well rather than lots of little things with very little time for depth. Okay. When we're all over the place learning different things, we're learning something here differently than there. We can't go as in depth as we want to. So we want to study one thing really well rather than lots of things with little time for depth. Um, educational experts talk all the time about how we forget most of what we hear unless we interact with the material on a relational level. Did you hear that? Educational experts say that we forget most of what we hear, especially up here, right? unless we interact with that material on a relational level. So instead of having just some wasted sermons, we want people to continue to to chew on that and discuss that information in connect groups so that we can take it even deeper. I never forget the story about a pastor who was in view of a call to church and he preached just a home run out of the park sermon. And they called the pastor and then the next week that he started, he preached the same sermon. They go, okay, well, maybe he just forgot that he preached that in view of a call. The third week came, he preached the same sermon. So finally, the deacons and some leaders said, Pastor, great sermon, but you preach it three times. Do you know that? He said, I know that. And when you folks start living it, I'll move on. 
And so there's some truth to that. None of us would say that we listen to one sermon and say, got it, living it out, completely perfected that passage. Nor would we go to connect group and say, got it, perfected that passage. So what this allows us to do is a deeper opportunity to reflect on the scripture to dig deeper into God's word and to discuss it, to interact with the material on a relational level. And then finally, one of the more important reasons is to bring unity to the body of Christ. Instead of having disjointed things that we're all learning, we're all laser focused. So instead of a shotgun approach, we're kind of shooting that shotgun, hoping it hits somewhere. We have a laser focus to be unified. Imagine if we're all learning the same things at the same time. And I'll just kind of end my answer with this. Imagine a family of four goes to, um, they go to Disney World. And you got two teenage kids and two parents, and they're going to Disney World. And imagine they get there and they have four days. And imagine the first day, one of the teenage kids goes to Animal Kingdom. Another one goes to Epcot. The mom goes to Magic Kingdom. And then the dad goes to Animal Kingdom. And then all those four days, they go to different parks, but they never go to the same park at the same time. Now, when they look back at pictures on that family vacation, they can say that they had um, some similar experiences, but they can never say they had a unified, shared experience. It would be foolish to say, let's go to Disney World as a family, have some great family experiences, and then split up and never see each other. That's ridiculous, right? In the same way, to say we're a unified body, but not be unified in what we're learning kind of defeats the purpose. So here's one of the reasons that we do this. Imagine to have grandparents and parents and kids and aunts and uncles and friends after worship and the days, you know, after worship following up and continuing to discuss those same topics instead of families coming around the supper table or the dinner table, whatever you call it. And, and, uh, having all these random discussions, we're all focused on the same thing, digesting the truth together and camping out on God's word a little bit longer. So unless we can say, man, I, I've aced God's word. I'm totally living everything out. Then we have no reason to say, I don't, I don't want to do this. Well, let's give it a shot because as we go deeper, God will bless that. And I've heard from many of you who've said, you feel a unifying spirit in this place as we're all traveling the same journey content wise together. So that's why we do it. And we hope that God continue to, continues to bless this effort. Thank you. Awesome. Good job. I think that's clear. Um, that's why we're here. Again, talking about the what, the vision, turning the church inside out in order to turn the world upside down. Um, that was one of the questions. Uh, here's an interesting one. And I think it, uh, is one that we should begin talking about. Uh, would a senior pastor of a different ethnicity better serve the community that we have become here at Wallace? Well, first of all, we haven't become a different ethnicity. Look around. I don't know about you, but uh, it's predominantly Caucasian. So we as a community, a church community, haven't become ethnically diverse. We have different ethnicities in our church and have a really great group of internationals in our classes and the community norwood yes has probably i think 30 plus language groups in it uh at the last one i heard so is it ethnically diverse yes but it's still very much a lower middle class caucasian community however if we don't open our eyes and our hearts to God for God to bring someone 
of different ethnicity to us as a pastor, whether it be the lead pastor or a teaching pastor or another ministry area pastor, then we, we need to rethink who we are because it may be that man who looks different than us and speaks different than us that brings revival to this church. So should we go looking for an ethnic pastor? No, but we shouldn't not consider an ethnically different pastor either. All, all is on the table as we seek God in this journey looking for a pastor. So I think we have to have our eyes and our hearts open. And as God brings people this way, ethnicity should be celebrated encouraged and strongly considered for this position or any other position. But it's like, I I don't think you should vote for president because of ethnicity or gender. I think you should vote for president. Well, I just lost everybody, didn't I? Based Based on God's man for this time. Who has God laid on your heart based on everything you have researched, looking at, to be the leader of the greatest nation of the world. It has nothing to do with ethnicity and gender. It has everything to do with God's hand and his preparation. It's the same way with the pastor. But certainly we should have our hearts and minds open for people of all ethnicities, both as members and as staff members and as lead pastors. I think it would be an incredible thing. I think it would be an incredible thing. But should we place that as a high priority of who we look at? No. Our priority is who's God got tapped to lead us, no matter ethnicity, age, whatever. It should be God's man for this time. Does that make sense? An interesting question. And yes, as as the community continues to evolve around us with with ethnic diversity, we should definitely look to have representation of ethnic diversity on our staff and in our lay leadership as we, we should always strive to look like the community we sit in, first and foremost. Because if we're not reaching this community, we're not doing our primary job initially in our Jerusalem. This is Norwood's our Jerusalem. And that's where all the mission work starts. So ethnicity has to be a huge consideration in regard to that. So, yeah, great question. Should spur a lot of con- uh, um, com- uh, conversation and thought. I think it's a great, great question. Uh, great place to, to take your discussion. The decisions for the church should not be made simply by the so-called board or a few of the deacons. Our people have the feeling that a few are making all the decisions and that is not productive or right. Not sure that's a question. It's more of a statement, but... Uh, Jeff Archer, chair of our deacon body, would you come and address that? Nothing like a hard question, right? Um, since Dale asked me to uh, take this when I've been thinking about the answer and what it is. So here's my answer. Um. You're right. This is not a military organization. Um, 
when I was a commander in Iraq, um, I made the decisions for our squadron on how best to support the regiment, when to send out patrols, um, what the priority of maintenance was, what the priority of personnel backfills were, if we had somebody sick or wounded, uh, did we replace them immediately or did, we, did somebody else have a greater need? And as a commander, that was my responsibility because I was responsible for everything that they did or that they failed to do. Um, and while that may seem an awful lot of power in one person's hands, and it probably is, I was trained for it, I was prepared for it, and I was responsible for it. For every decision that I made, I was responsible to my commander to do the right thing to make the best decisions that I knew how to make with the information I had at that time. And in this church, we don't do that. What happens is the church body, you, are responsible for nominating people to lead you. And those people serve as deacons, they serve as members of the personnel committee. They serve as members of the finance committee or as the church treasurer. And they, in turn, elect people to lead them to be the chairs of those committees or the body of deacons. And they vote on that. And uh, since I have never been fortunate enough to serve on the personnel committee or the finance committee and I'm not seeking that position I will not speak directly to that one but I will speak to the deacons I became a deacon in 2006 here and um, at the end of 2014 Bobby Marshman, who was the chair-elect for the deacons at that time, fixing to be the chairman in 2015, called me and said, God has laid on my heart that I would like to have you consider serving as the chair-elect for the deacons. I said, let me pray about it. So I did. Talked to Rhonda. And I accepted and I served as a chair-elect in 2015. At the end of 2015, you all nominated some new deacons um, to serve. Some of them had already been deacons before. Some of them were new deacons. And I was praying about who I would ask to be chair-elect for the deacons and I asked Adam O'Dell who I did not know very well I knew he had a good reputation um, smart young man but that's who God laid on my heart and I talked to Pastor Mike about it 
And he said, I think that's, I think that's a good recommendation. So I asked Adam. He said, let me consider it. And he said, yes. And the deacons voted and said, we agree that Adam Odell ought to be the chair elect. So Adam's fixing to be the chair. And that's how it works in the deacons. So you all nominate men to serve as deacons. Then they, in turn, select a chair and then vote on a chair-elect. In June, you had that opportunity for next year to do that. And out of a church of hundreds, we had 70 nomination ballots turned in. So if you feel like you're not being well represented in the leadership, look in a mirror. We have prayed more and consulted more. Adam and I have met with Daryl and Dale for lunch almost every other week in the last few months. We have prayed. Adam's byline on his email signature is keep praying. We've asked you to pray. A couple weeks ago, I stood up here and said, if we've offended any of you or you, we think, you think we've done something wrong, come and let us know. Talk to us. We work for you, but we are following God. If we've offended you, if we've hurt you, I, I'm serious. Come and talk to us. We will pray with you. We love you. I've got the best mother-in-law and father-in-law I could have ever had. That have belonged to this church for years. I would not do anything to hurt them. I would not do anything to hurt any of you. But more importantly, your leadership And I can say this confidently, your leadership would never go against God's will as we know it. And that's probably the best answer I can give. That's how we are organized. That's how we run. It's not in the hands of just a few or just a few deacons. Every month the deacons meet. There's 42 of us. That's not exactly a few. That's probably about a little less than 10%. Probably more about 7 seven to 8% of people that actually attend regularly, both campuses. Okay? They love you. They love God. And that's all they're trying to do is serve. So I would say to you, if you're nominated to serve, serve. Say yes.
because we need you. You are part of the body. And I guarantee you, when I talked to Adam O'Dell in November, we had no idea that we would be where we are right now. No idea. And we didn't ask for it. <laughs> we, we didn't, there's not some diabolical plans like, yeah, we're going to plot this and Mike's going to retire and we're going to take over the church. We ask for your prayers. We need them. We're not the smartest tools in the shed. The sharpest tools in the shed. Smartest guys in the church, probably. But we are desperately trying to follow our God. I love that Henry Blackaby quote. You cannot follow God and stay where you are. I think Adam and I have discovered that way more than we wanted to. But please, we're here a lot. We've started coming at 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings because we realized that a third of our church was meeting early for connect groups on Sunday morning, and we weren't seeing them a lot. So Adam and I said, we need to, we need to be there. So if you see us standing out there in the atrium at the ele- elevator, the elevator is a popular place at the 8.30 hour. Popular. Come and talk to us. We want to hear from you, but we will ask a couple things. If you're really going to talk to us about something that's serious, that you think is a serious matter in the church, pray about it. Read God's word. Seek his guidance on it. Okay? We've had some anonymous comments, and aren't those kind of comments always anonymous? That are not helpful at all. They're actually kind of hurtful. And they were meant to be hurtful the way they were written. That is not unifying. That is not uplifting to the church. We are all one body. And to get mad at your hand because it smashed your thumb that was in the way with the hammer. And to take your hand to the saw and run it through the saw just because you're mad at it is stupid. Don't be hurtful to each other. Okay, we love you, and I hope I've answered the question. Uh, I thought about having all the board members come up, and then having all the personnel committee members and the finance committee members and the deacons come up and say, "We're really not just a few members making decisions." Okay, it's a bunch of people, but that's how the process works. We love you, and I, if I haven't answered your question. See me over a donut. We'll pray about it. Okay? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Jeff. I was never, had never had the privilege of serving our country in the military. But if I did, I would have loved to have served under a Jeff Archer. Uh, Don't come any better, as far as I'm concerned. The last question is, uh, what's Chad's status at Cumberland? Did you put this one in there, Chad? Is it? Oh, okay. Margaret Davis is the... Uh
<laughs> Margaret Davis is the chair of our uh, Cumberland Campus Pastor Search Committee, so I'm going to ask Margaret if she'll come and address Chad's status. That's a dangerous question, isn't it, Chad? <laughs> we are delighted at Cumberland to have Chad with us, and we appreciate you home folk here at Wallace sharing Chad with us. Um, it has been truly a blessing to have him there. Um, and, you know, we've been through a lot of change, um, and God is working, I can tell you that. And it's it's a beautiful thing on Sunday morning to see that happening in worship at Cumberland. So we um, continue to covet your prayers, and we thank you for your prayers. Um, we do have a pastor search committee in process for that campus, and I'll remind you kind of of who's on it because it started, I guess, back in the end of February, 1st of March, and it's Tyler Gaddis, it is Kayla Cardio, Dick Sampsel, Grant Williams, Mickey Duncan, and then Dale Buchanan, Dale Buchanan? Dale Maddox. I know a Dale Buchanan. My brain is not well. Dale Maddox. And Jeff Buchanan. So I got the, got them all crossed over. But they have been very instrumental, or Jeff Bohannon, in, in um, working with us on this committee. And um, all I can tell you is we have been meeting almost every single week since March, um, praying, working, seeking God's will. And um, I'm delighted to tell you that very soon we're going to be bringing a recommendation before the church for the campus pastor position, and we're also going to bring some recommendations on how we see the Cumberland campus interacting and with the Wallace campus here and how we see that all working together as one body. So we're excited about that, and uh, you should hear more from us in the next few weeks. Good, good. Thank you, Margaret. I appreciate you and your team's work. Y'all been doing a, a great job. They've they're, they're, they've taken on a lot of responsibility, not just in the campus pastor search, but in truly trying to craft uh, sort of a an operational structure because this is all new to us. We've never had a campus before other than a main campus. So they're they're helping us through their process and through their team craft what that ministry looks like and how how communication and and uh, decision making all flow so that's that's all part of their process and they're doing a great great job of it that is the last question we are going to discuss tonight uh dale is holding up a big picture of Krispy cream donuts uh, i told you what would be on people's minds and and that's coming from someone who's done a very diligent job of being on a diet and losing weight, which he needs to be applauded for. But Krispy Kremes overwhelm everybody. But thank you all for coming. We're going to have a great week again on the 11th. Next week, enjoy your Labor Day weekend time with family. Don't neglect uh, Sunday morning because we're going to have a, another uh, good time on Sunday morning, some great worship and a and a word from the Lord. So let me uh, bless your donuts. I'm not sure that that's proper, but uh, if, it, if it can be, let me bless them. God, thank you for a sweet, sweet people, a sweet, sweet spirit. Lord, for such great, godly men and women who, who are here and serve this church with your heart and your mind. So God, as we go now in fellowship, I pray that you would bless our time and 
Lord, bless these donuts. If any donut can be blessed, it's a Krispy Kreme. And we love you because of Krispy Kreme and because you love us. So, God, uh, we just want to go this week and share the gospel everywhere we go. And we pray that this, this altar is full of not only prayer but of changed and transformed lives each and every week that we come to meet with you. So, God, we love you and thank you and want to tell you in the name of your son. Amen. Have a donut or 12.